This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Well, today for our hot question of the day, we're talking about handguns. And this has been coming up more and more in the federal election campaign. So while at a campaign event in Toronto recently, Liberal leader Justin Trudeau said a number of cities have said, including Toronto, they want more tools to restrict handguns. And he says his party has a plan to help give them that power. But we've also heard very clearly from a number of cities like Toronto and others who've said that they want more tools to restrict handguns uh, within their municipalities. Uh, And that's why we are going to work with them and work with provinces and territories uh, to give them the power to do just that. And Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart has now weighed in, and he says that if cities do get that ability to ban handguns, and that is exactly what he intends to do. I know this is something that other big cities want, including, uh, I was talking to Mayor Surrey, uh, Surrey earlier, uh, this is something he also supports. Uh, there's no place for handguns in cities, and we should get rid of them. All right, so that's what we're asking you for our hot question of the day today. Would you support a handgun ban in your city? I and mean, clearly it's a topic, right? These guys are all talking about it. It keeps coming up on the campaign trail. Do you say, yeah, this is about safety. Let's do this. Or do you say, no, this is not the solution. So go to Sarah 980 to cast your vote. You'll also go on at CKNW. That's our CKNW Twitter account. You can email me too. I'll read your email, simi at cknw.com or give us a call on our buzz line, 604-331-2899. Simple question today. Would you support a handgun ban in your city? Yes, it's about safety. No, it's not the solution. Tell us where you come down on that. I am really looking forward to seeing how this one breaks down out there. Check it out and we'll be checking back in with our results throughout the show today. It's time for us to check in with Keith Baldry, our Global News Legislative Bureau Chief in Victoria to talk more about this legal victory for BC and to kind of put it all into context for us. So Keith is with us now. Good morning, Keith. Morning, Simi. Okay, so I'm guessing this this might be a win for BC, but this is just, it's a temporary win, right? This is not a bigger ruling here. No, it's a, it's a temporary win. It's a temporary injunction. Uh, basically, the, the court's ruling, look, uh, this is a serious issue, and the federal court is the traditional area of dispute resolution when you've got two provinces with opposing views. What's unusual about this is I don't recall a province uh, having, a, uh, first of all, a province challenging another province's piece of legislation. It's usually jurisdictional disputes and, you know, um, competing, overlapping of claims and this right. type of thing. Uh, but this is a BC channel, challenging the validity of another province's piece of legislation that was passed by the provincial legislature. And you've got Alberta basically enacting a bill that ostensibly is designed to penalize, in this case, one province, uh, British Columbia. So it's a, it's a serious matter that the federal court has decided it needs more information and it's uh, submissions, legal submissions from both sides before it can make a, a final ruling here. So this is a temporary win for BC, but a win nevertheless. Right. But it wasn't all political theater to begin with though like was it even realistic to think that alberta could do something like this how are you going to tell private companies who to sell their product to 
Yeah, this this is basically, I, I think, a case of uh, high-level shadow boxing. Keep in mind, this bill was actually passed by the former NDP government in Alberta. It was proclaimed into law by the United Conservatives under Jason Kenney. Um, and the law basically would require uh, companies to get a permit from the energy minister in Alberta before they could ship anything through that pipeline. So I think a lot of this, as has been so much uh, the case between BC and Alberta, it's a shadow boxing game that where nobody actually lands any real punches. BC's done nothing really to block the construction of the pipeline, despite Jason Kenney's off-repeated rhetoric that somehow BC's uh, putting impediments in front of it. In fact, quite the opposite. British, the BC NDP government has been granting permit after permit after permit to allow the, the pipeline to proceed. There's some bureaucratic and legalese uh, fights going on, but in terms of actually stopping the construction, BC's done nothing, and certainly nothing to merit Alberta's use of this sort of uh, nuclear option of, yeah. of literally turning off the tap. So it's long on rhetoric, short on specifics, and short on actual action. Right, but it certainly did the trick for Jason Kenney, right? Even though it was originally brought well, in by, by Rachel Notley, it did the trick for Jason Kenney during the election. It, exactly. I mean, Jason Kenney can dine out on this. He's, he's seen in Alberta. It's interesting. You know, I do a lot of Alberta radio yeah. with our global colleague stations there, and their take on these things is completely different than us. They do think <laughs> that we are somehow at war with Alberta and that we're doing things actively uh, to stop this pipeline, uh, you know, using every tool in the toolbox, because that's the impression Jason Kenney leaves with Albertans, that somehow BC's constantly trying to throw uh, you know, roadblocks in front of this right. thing. And I keep explains them. No, we've actually done very little. There's some court challenges. You know, BC's got a, 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 a its own uh, reference case where we're trying to uh, enact uh, the, the rule that we can uh, somehow govern what flows through that pipeline on our end. That's going to be in the Supreme Court of Canada. That's a reference case that BC's already lost in the BC Court of Appeal by a 5 nothing judgment. Uh, but BC's in, in court a lot uh, to try to tie up this pipeline, but it doesn't really tie it up. It just simply kicks the ball down the road uh, as courts have yet to make a final determination. Right. Okay. This is what I wonder too. Like what happens when you explain that to them? That don't, what are you guys talking about? That's not really what's going on. <laughs> it's uh, no, they, they again, Albertans take the view, I think, increasingly they're, they're somewhat isolated from the rest of Canada because they're so dependent on one industry that certainly has a lot of problems. And I think they see everyone else as, as a potential enemy to that industry because of legal challenges. But in this case, as I keep explaining, legal challenges are one thing, denying permits and preventing construction is quite another. And that's not happening with this project, it's simply a legal fight not a real, you know, on-the-ground fight, at least from the VC government perspective. Right. Okay, so then what happens now with this whole thing? Well, this particular case, I think, will be heard some months from now uh, over whether or not uh, Alberta has the power to turn off the taps. I don't think this is the big, the big case in this particular um, ongoing battle over whether the pipeline gets built or not. I think the more fundamental case is whether or not uh, the Court of Appeal will be satisfied that there were adequate consultations with First Nations. That's the key key legal argument here and certainly where the pipeline could ultimately die if the courts determine that there was not adequate consultation and I'm not saying they will because right. they've already ruled there was but if they ultimately um, decide that's that's the finding then the whole thing starts again uh, the whole process um, of environmental assessment it basically starts at, at day one again and that would could potentially exhaust the economic viability of this project so that's the real key case mm -hmm. that 
that has yet to be heard. Uh, these other ones, you know, whether BC can, can challenge the, what goes through the pipeline or whether Alberta can turn off the taps, I'd be very surprised if the courts side with either the province, either Alberta or BC in their own uh, individual court cases here. But if they did, I mean, that changes the game, uh, uh, the channel quite a bit. But I, I think that has potential of a lesser impact on uh, ultimately on this project than the more fundamental issue of whether First Nations was consulted right. were consulted adequately because courts have signaled to them that's the key matter that they they're most interested in more than anything. Right. It just seems like there's a never-ending number of court cases having to do with all of these issues. Oh, there is, and because we have so many levels of court, you know, yeah. you've got you've got your 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 provincial supreme courts, you've got your provincial court of appeals, you've got the federal court of appeal, and you've got the supreme court of Canada. That's four levels that these things have to go through, and when you've got four different cases, uh, it can be ex an exhausting process. All I know to me is that I should have put my kids in law school and sent them to <laughs> uh, energy law because uh, you can make a I think a lot of lawyers are making a lot of money off these legal challenges of this pipeline that has yet to be built. And it sounds like they're going to be doing that for a long time yet, Keith. So thank you. You're right. I'll uh, think about that. Yeah. I'll tell my kids to go to law school. Thank you. <laughs> uh, we'll be talking about this again. Okay. We will be. That is Keith Baldry, our Global News Legislative Bureau Chief in Victoria. Well, it does seem like fall is upon us. The temperature is kind of changing and we're probably no longer spending weeks or our vacations out at places like Bunsen Lake and enjoying the weather there. Uh, but now that all the kind of crowds have gone home, the cleanup begins. We want to talk more about that now with CKNW contributor Claire Allen, who joins us. Hi. Hey, Simi. This sounds gross. Not going to lie. Yeah, it's pretty gross and also very disappointing. It very is. sad. Yeah, like the beach. So we're talking about a place like Bunsen Lake where the beach you go there and you're like, oh, it's pristine. It's mm -hmm. beautiful. It's but beautiful it's BC. I love boating here. I love swimming. You know, and as you not. said, now that the temperature has dropped and falls upon us, the memories of you floating in the lake are fading, right? They're fading from your mind. The sun, you're no longer warm. No. But you know what hasn't faded? The trash that you <laughs> left behind. No or, kidding. Tell me about these people that you just talked to. Yeah. So I, I just spoke with Tess uh, Hibrick. She is the master scuba diver trainer with the Diving Walker in Vancouver. And they do these dives every year where they uh, go to different bodies of water and they clean up the trash that is in the bodies of water. So the trash that has settled at the bottom of the lake kind of thing. Yes, I know it's different when they do ocean cleanups and stuff like that. But yes, in in uh, when they clean up lakes, it's the trash that has settled at the bottom of the lake. And so recently, she and 15 volunteers undertook a, Bunsen, a cleanup at Bunsen Lake, and this is what they found. So we are setting up uh, cleanup dives at Bunsen Lake, usually annually. We go there in uh, the fall time. They're really busy over the summer months, so there's lots of items dropped um, in the summer months. So um, we pulled out just over 220 pounds of garbage, lots of glass bottles, cans. Oh, that is not good. Yeah, 220 That's pounds crazy. of garbage. And yeah, it is crazy, Simi. It's so crazy and so disappointing. So I asked Tess how True. she and her team of volunteers felt as they were watching all of this Ugh. garbage from the bottom of the lake accumulate on the shore. It's quite devastating to see all the stuff that actually ends up in the lakes. Uh, of course, some of the items are drop like sunglasses and paddles but there's definitely a good amount of garbage that is beer cans and bottles that definitely are probably thrown off thrown overboard uh on purpose um but yeah i mean you know we try to clean up there's other groups going out to bunsen lake as well so i think between 
all the efforts out at the lake, we pull out most of the stuff on the closed areas anyways. Okay, that's kind of gross. So, like, the paddles, I can understand. Sunglasses. Sunglasses, because that's an accident. Mm -hmm. You lose... But beer cans, beer bottles, come on, people. I really can't understand the mindset of someone that's out on a boat drinking a beer or a a can of pop or whatever and just tosses it overboard. Like, I can't get inside that person's mind. You've already had one too many at that point. I just, I don't even think that's a, that's an excuse. It's ridiculous. Like I can't, I just, littering is something I just don't understand. And I know that we've talked about how some people here are just, if you say you littered, people are just shocked. shocked. I am. Like if I see somebody littering, I'm shocked. If you saw, like, let's say you were single and you were dating and you saw your date litter, would that be like. Relationship over. A hundred percent I'm with you. Absolutely. Yeah. Can't, can't deal with Relationship killer right there. Yeah. I think it's gross. And so I, when she said that they found all these cans at the bottom of the lake, I was shocked. Like, do you just what, just put your hand over the boat and just drop it? It's crazy. I guess you throw it. I don't know. Like, what I, makes people do this? nuts. And so I asked Tess, like, once they pull out all this garbage and it's starting to, you know, make the news that there's all this trash in the bottom of our beautiful lakes, what is she hoping that people and lake goers especially will take away from their cleanup? It's really interesting to see because a lot of the uh, people just spending the day at the lake seeing us cleaning up, they really realize how much garbage actually ends up at the bottom of the lake. So there was a lot of pictures taken, a lot of questions asked. Um, But I think definitely we need to be more mindful of what we are bringing to the lake and that we're taking our garbage back as well. Yeah, we should definitely do better to preserve preserve BC's beauty a little better. I really admire this group for doing this because they do this in different bodies of water. Yeah, so they've done cleanups in Alice Lake, um, some other ones. They, they've been going for about three years now where they just go around to different areas, uh, and different lakes, different bodies of water and, and do the cleanup. And it actually sounds pretty cool. However, the only way you can participate is if you're a certified scuba diver, right? Like right. I'm not, so I can't. Yeah, I can only pick up what's oh, on the shore. Oh, is that not on your list yet? Have you not <laughs> done not that? Are you sure? Me, I underwater. feel like you'll get to that at some point. No, oh, no? no, no, no. But um, I mean, so <laughs> if you're a certified scuba diver and um, this has sort of inspired you and maybe you want to get involved, right. um, you actually can help clean up some of our province's most beautiful bodies of water. We do post our cleanups on our Facebook page. We do put them up on our website as well. And then uh, we usually do a couple dives with uh, barbecue in between. And then we give diverse prizes for the most amount of garbage pulled out, the most unique item that has been pulled out of the lake. And yeah, it seems to it seems to grow in numbers, our cleanup dives. Uh, we've been doing them pretty consistently for the last three years for sure. And you can definitely see the numbers growing, which is amazing. So that's good. That's I mean, cool. that's the positive side of it. It's just too bad that they actually have to do this. Yeah, you're, that's a good point. It's too bad that they have to get together volunteers to clean up other people's mess, right? Like, that's yeah. unfortunate. And that is the unfortunate thing about littering. And unfortunately, what I, well, this is my observation, is that this isn't just a problem in our province's lakes. Um, this is a problem in many places around Metro Vancouver. In my own neighborhood, I live right by City Hall and there is a lot of trash on the ground. Is and there? It really, it really makes me angry when I'm walking my dogs and I, I keep saying this, that I'm going to do it. I'm going to start picking up the trash, like at a designated pair of tongs. I just haven't f- found them yet. <laughs> <laughs> if you know where Claire can get those, let her know. I wonder, do you think that we have gotten lax on the issue of littering like and and I wonder you're much younger than I am but Mm -hmm. when I was in like elementary school we used to have like 
15 minutes or whatever after lunch where we'd run outside and we'd pick up litter. Like we just pick up garbage and clean up the yard. Like that was like an ongoing effort. So we knew littering is bad because look at, we have to pick it up or, do, you know, we have to yeah. go under the, did you ever have to do that at school? I did. And I actually participated in Earth Day when I was younger in my oh. neighborhood where we'd go into, we'd pick up the trash that was just around our neighborhood. All our neighbors would do it. And it was kind of a fun way to get to know everyone and make your neighborhood look nicer by picking up the trash. But I definitely notice more litter now. Um, I think so too. Yeah, I don't know what it is. You're right. Because I grew up that way. You grew up that way. So obviously there are a couple of generations that grew up with this message that littering is bad. And yet we still have this problem. Like I see, you know, uh, straws. I see plastic cups everywhere. I see uh, just packaging, food packaging everywhere. We are more of a disposable society now, though, than we were even 20 years ago or 30 years ago, right? So many more with the advent of your Starbucks and so many Tim Hortons and all of that. I think there's more of those cups around. Mm -hmm. Like that's not the kind of stuff that you saw back then. But I feel like there's also a lot of information out there about how devastating uh, improper disposal of plastics is to our environment. So I don't True. understand. And also just trash on the ground is gross. Like what what happened to that message? Like why do you want your city to look like crap? And it you looks and I, bad. You and I were both in Japan yes, last we year were. at the same time. And it was amazing that there was no litter mm-hmm. no and one. also no public garbage cans. Yes, there's no trash cans because they're training. They want to kind of train their population to not rely on trash cans in, uh, as they, in public, they lead yeah. up to the Olympics, right? For security reasons. So people will actually take their trash with them. Pack it in, it pack home. it out. What a novel concept, hey? Take yeah. your trash with you. Take it and bring it back or dispose of it or just try to, and I think that also helps you to minimize your amount of litter as well. Yeah, and but I've actually found it interesting because there was a lot of, in my opinion, a lot of unnecessary packaging in Asia that I sort of came across in Japan. But still, no trash on the street. Very, very clean. Yeah. Um, which, I don't know why we have are not able to do that. Which we which links back to the story about places like Bunsen Lake. No, we don't need garbage, more garbage cans to no. ruin the scenery. You pack it in, you pack it out. Yeah, pack up that- your garbage and just look after it. You t- you look after your cooler. You look after your leftover beer and all that other stuff, you can look after your garbage too. Uh, yeah, there's no reason why it should end up in the bottom of the lake. No. Yeah, so I would love to know from our listeners if they think that there is an increase of, if they experience an increase of littering, if they've seen it in their city. I know for sure as a Vancouver resident, I have. I have yeah. And it's really distressing and I'm, I'm about to take measures into my own hands. Oh, make sure you record that when that, ha- when that <laughs> happens. I want to see that. All right, thank you for that, Claire. We are asking you, is litter a problem in your neighborhood? Our next guest has a real super fan following, and I'm just talking about here at CKNW, here at work. You should have heard the people yelling at her when she came in today, and there's no surprise about this because she is writing about women's health in a way that just everybody says, why haven't we had this before? We do have better access to health information than we've ever had before, but women's health, sometimes there are still problems and issues that don't get talked widely enough. And Dr. Jen Gunter has made it her mission to make sure we do talk about those things. She's an obstetrician, a gynecologist, and the author of her latest book, which is called, and I love it, it is The Vagina Bible. And Dr. Gunter joins us now. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Is that the kind of reaction that you get everywhere you go these days? <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, you guys have given me the most welcome reaction oh, so nice. far. Well, we're number one. Um, <laughs> why did you decide to write this book? Why was it important to you? Well, so I've been debunking women's health myth online for quite a long time, about six years or so. And it just amazed me that it was like this game of whack-a-mole, you know, this I'd debunk one, a new one would come up, and then this old one would pop back up again. And I just kept thinking, like, how are we still in this state where 
we have all this information. I mean, every single person is literally walking around with a pocket computer, and yet the information can't get from A to B. And so I had spent a day in the office and I had, you know, told women not to use yogurt in their vagina or that they can't change the scent of their vagina with pineapple or that, that no, a penis isn't the metric of sexual pleasure for a woman. And, you know, each time this woman would say, how did I not know that? How did I not know that? And at the end of the day, I was like, how did they not know that? And I was sitting in my office and I thought, women need a textbook and I'm going to write it. Was there a moment where you thought, I need to talk more about this? Like, I know you've been very vocal on issues <laughs> like vaginal steaming. Like, why would anybody do that in that vaginal egg thing that was going on right. with goop? And so did you think, oh, all right, I, I'm enough. I have to say something. Yeah. I mean, these myths are, one, they're so ridiculous and the poor information or misinformation or disinformation is harmful, right? Nobody is served when they don't have facts. So there's that aspect of things. But many of these myths are also based on sort of patriarchal ideas that the vagina is dirty or the uterus needs to be cleaned. And so it's really important to sort of set that record straight because those myths have been around since the beginning of time. And I think is there still maybe a level of discomfort when you're constantly saying words like vulva and vagina? People are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you talking about? <laughs> I think there is, obviously, I'm a gynecologist. I've been in OBGYN for 30 years. So my comfort level saying the word vagina, vulva, clitoris, orgasm is obviously yeah. different. Yeah. But I'd like everybody, like that's part of my vagenda. I want everybody to be able to I'm say sorry, those- did you just say vagenda? Vagenda. How much do I love that? <laughs> <laughs> that's my vagenda. It's for everybody to be able to talk about their bodies in non-sophomoric ways. I mean, if you can't say what hurts and where, you can't get care from your doctor. You can't talk with your girlfriends or your partner about what might you might want uh, you know, to have happen to your body or what's happened to your body. You can't ask for the kind of sex you want. You can't learn about pads and tampons. And, you know, so not talking about something implies that this sh- shame, and that's not true. And so do you think women sometimes have had trouble perhaps going to the doctor and really explaining what the problem is. Absolutely. I see that every day. People come in and they say, oh, well, my vagina itches. And what they mean is their vulva. And uh, it's not uncommon that you know women, even when they come to the doctor's office, get stuck using euphemisms like down there, lady parts, uh, you know, and I'll have to say, do you mean your vagina? And then I'm giving them permission to say it. Like nobody should need permission to say, to talk about their own vagina. You know, you should be able to talk about wherever you want to. It's not a bad word. And have you ever, have you run into any people who push back against that? Um, you know, well, yeah, Jack Dorsey on Twitter. Oh. So, <laughs> so you know, we tried to have promoted tweets for my book, my American publisher, Kensington, and they were banned for, uh, for you know, using prof- you know, profanity. So Wait a minute, because you were just using the descriptions of body parts? Yes. So they tried to do promoted tweets for the book, The Vagina Bible, and they were um, flagged as being inappropriate based on the word vagina, vaginal, and, wait for it, OBGYN. No. Yeah, my whole profession, caring for women, is somehow offensive. And got, you know, so we weren't allowed to have promoted tweets for that. Um, Also, though, for the show, um, Gensplaining, the CBC wasn't allowed to, um, uh, they had ads with periods flagged as being, you know, gross and inappropriate and taken off Google. So Google ads did the same thing. Really? Yeah. So there's, you know. And and yet we run erection ads all the time. 
how many times have people watched football and seen, you know, that, that the ad where the yeah. some dude is throwing a football through a tire or swing and there's, there's nothing phallic about that at all. <laughs> no <laughs> so way. True. So true. Uh, let's run through some of the myths because you, you write about a lot of those. What do you think is are some of the biggest myths that women come to you with? Well, I think one of the biggest myths is that, you know, good sex for a heterosexual woman um, requires penile insertion. You know, that if you don't orgasm with a penis, then there's something wrong with you. And that actually means that you're totally normal. Two-thirds of women uh, need direct clitoral stimulation somehow to have an orgasm. And if a penis doesn't do that for you, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with you. Another big myth is that, uh, is that, white cotton underwear is something that will prevent you from getting yeast infections, but that's a purity myth. If white clothes helped you, then dermatologists would tell us all to dress in white, right? To protect our skin. <laughs> that's so but true. But they don't. Yeah. Another big myth that, yeah, this comes up all the time, is that you can change the way your vagina tastes with pineapple by eating pineapple. Okay. I'm going to admit, I've never heard this before. Good. So <laughs> like they think by ingesting pineapple, that yes. will make a difference? Yeah. So if you eat pineapple, you'll make your vagina taste sweeter. And I'm like, sisters, there's nothing wrong with your vagina to begin with. If a guy thinks that you need to change the way you taste, he's the wrong guy. There's something oh. wrong with him. How does that go over? Um, you know, it goes over pretty well, I think. Um, you know, I you know, I, I don't in the office obviously tell people that, you know, the guy they're with has got some serious problems, but I um, I do like on uh, when I'm interviewed because there's people listening at home. I mean, I hear women every week in my office having he heard something horrible said to them about their body by some dude. And, you know, women are very vulnerable to that, especially if you hear it when you're 16 or 17. Uh, and, uh, and so I want to set the record straight. I mean, telling women to eat pineapple to change the scent of their vagina is no different than douching. It's sort of implying that it's dirty and needs to be changed. And why does nobody care about how scrotums smell? True. Good example. <laughs> good point. Uh, but you're right. Things do change when it comes to women's health because you're right. That one example right there when it comes to douching, th there's been a a tremendous change on how we think about that. Yeah. I mean, douching is as harmful. I, I tell people douching is like cigarettes for your vagina. That's basically what it's like. It, in the States, douches have warning labels like cigarettes. They're, uh, they're very harmful. Yet we can't get people to stop doing it because this idea that the vagina is dirty and needs to be cleaned is so pervasive. So what do you tell women then about that? If they You're, do come to you with those kinds of concerns, how do you tell them what the real deal is? So, you know, we do an exam, first of all. So make sure that they don't have a medical condition that could explain their symptoms. And then I tell them, their vagina is normal and that it's a self-cleaning oven. It doesn't need any help at all. <laughs> nice way to put yeah. it. Yeah. Vaginal discharge is actually a glorious adaptive evolutionary mechanism to keep everything healthy. It's like saliva in your mouth. It's really needed and it's it should be, you know, worshipped basically because that's what keeps things clean. Okay, so obviously that's hard for women to sometimes take though, because you're right, they probably think something is wrong. Yeah, I mean, just a couple of years ago, there was a challenge on Instagram where girls were showing their underwear at the end of the day to prove they had no discharge. There was? Yeah. Where, it was called where the underwear challenge. Been, where have I been hiding? Where have I not seen any <laughs> Well, of you stuff? have to understand that my area of social media is probably a bit probably different. Probably different. <laughs> probably different than Right? Are. And that because of what I do, people send me things. Oh, did you know about this? Did you know about this? So I, I get that a lot, right? Right. So, Nobody sends me that kind of stuff. And please don't. It's yeah. Just please don't. I don't really actually want to see any of that. What do you hope? Like, who do you want 
to read this book? Do you want young women to read this book? Do you want older women to read this book? I want every woman to read this book. I think you could start reading at the age of 13 or 14. I think if every young girl were vaccinated against those myths with this book, like how great that would be. Uh, I think anybody who's vagina adjacent should read the book, right? Like if you love someone with a vagina, if you have a, a you know a child with a vagina, there's even a chapter in there on, on vaginas and vulvas in transition. Uh, so, you know, I cover all the aspects of vaginal health for um, for trans men and trans women as well. So do, are women good at maintaining their health? Like how often should they be seeing a doctor? How often should they be checking in with an OBGYN? Well, a lot of that's age dependent. So if you're under the age of, or if you're 25 and under, then you're going to need regular screening for sexually transmitted infections if you're sexually active. So that's a little bit different. Cervical cancer screening should start at the age of 21. And it's usually about every three years, but guidelines do vary. So, you know, your doctor will tell you. And then obviously if you have any health concerns, if you're missing periods, if you're getting irregular periods, if you are unhappy with your method of contraception, if you need contraception, um, you know, any symptoms. But regular check-ins are really just for, you know, pap smears and um, and sexually transmitted infection screening. Do we need to be better at that? Because I have a feeling like, oh, and I'm totally guilty of this. I think, well, nothing's wrong, so I'm not going to go to the doctor. I'm not going to bother the doctor with this. Well, you don't want to miss your regular screening, right? You don't want to miss your yeah. cervical cancer screening. You're not bothering us for cervical cancer screening. We want you to come in for that. So that's not bothering us at all. I do think that a lot of women, because women are fixers and copers, that, right? Yes, we are. Yeah. So you have minor symptoms, you muscle through, and then it's eight months and you don't realize how bad it is. And so, you know, that's why I'm trying to get all this information out there. So maybe women can sort of realize, you know, what maybe is okay to put off to one side because life is busy and what really needs attention right now. Like, for example, if you're having bleeding after sex, don't wait eight months. You need to be seen. It's, you know, it's not a hemorrhage. It's not, I mean, if you're bleeding heavily, you need to be seen right Right. now. But if that's not something to put off. Use your common sense. Yeah. Well, but, you know, your body, you sometimes a little bit of bleeding can be a sign of a big problem. So again, that's why information is so helpful because then you can help figure it out. But you should never hesitate about calling your doctor for advice. Your doctor should want to give you advice. And you can always read the book because that'll help you out too. Absolutely. If you need information about the vagina and vulva, I got you covered. You certainly do. The book is called The Vagina Bible, so you can check it out. Actually, you can see Dr. Gunter tonight at Capilano University as part of their speaker series. It's on at 8. Tickets are $12 each. For more information, visit their events page at capilanou.ca. Listen, good luck tonight. Thank you so much. You're going to have to answer a whole bunch of questions just like that that just happened. That's all right. I love it. Okay, good. (laughs) Have you heard the phrase, compassion fatigue before. I think you probably have. Do you think we have it though? I mean, we have affordability issues. We have homelessness issues. We have a public opioid overdose health crisis. And yes, people want to help. We want to try to fix these things. But is there frustration setting in? Well, one Vancouver Island mayor is raising that suggestion and is asking the provincial government at the Union of BC Municipalities Convention for more support on this. Leonard Krogh is the mayor of Nanaimo, and he joined us earlier to talk about this issue. Well, Mayor Krogh, thank you very much for joining us today. Now, you you said some interesting things at the UBCM yesterday that caught our attention. For one, you talked about compassion fatigue. What did you mean by that? Quite simply, that there are people in communities across this province, and but I can only speak to mine firmly, that are being victimized in direct, directly or indirectly by the petty crime associated with active addiction. And that is leading to a certain loss of compassion. I call it compassion fatigue. It's a term that, that many are using. You know, 
the, the, the current government faces in a horrendous challenge. I mean, we have 30 or 40 years of social policy that, that tossed people out of mental health institutions onto the streets. The supports were never there. You add in an opioid crisis, the ordinary levels of addiction in society, affordability, uh, you throw it all together and you have uh, what is a bit of a nightmare for many communities. And, and I think that's what politicians, uh, local politicians, were trying to express yesterday to Minister Darcy, uh, that we don't have the resources, the legal jurisdiction, uh, the ability uh, or the skills to handle this. Right. Do you think people want to help? Like, obviously, it's a public health crisis. When we first started hearing about this, people said, yes, we must do something. But do you feel that goodwill is running out? I think that goodwill is running out among some people, not everybody. In Nanaimo, we have established, uh, co-chaired by two of our councillors, councillors Bonner and Hemmons, a health and housing uh, task force that is trying to work to, with all of the agencies that are important and the, level, and the levels of government ministries that have an interest and involvement and bring together some coordinated strategies and obviously hope to secure uh, and ensure that my city uh, gets the funding it needs to deal with this. We uh, estimate that in Nanaimo we have something in the range of 600 homeless people. Not all are mentally suffering from mental illness or addicted, uh, but they are definitely homeless. And that, in comparison per capita for Vancouver, means we have a much bigger problem. And Terrace, as was articulated yesterday so well by its mayor, has an even bigger problem. And how, why do you think that is, though? I mean, 600 homeless people in Nanaimo, that strikes me as a huge number. What has happened it in is. these small communities? Look, we face, it's not Vancouver that's the only place in the province that's expensive to live, or Burnaby or Richmond. Uh, and you also, as I say, have the opioid crisis. Um, the, the numbers of people who are, are suffering from mental illness, some of whom, and indeed probably a more significant number than people care to admit, should be institutionalized or housed in supportive housing and or institutions, are literally living in our streets. Uh, you know, I, I stopped at a cash machine on the way here on a Sunday at the Royal Bank downtown, and there's a fellow who I saw a few minutes earlier on the street with a blanket wrapped around him, goes in and sits in the ATM area uh, talking to himself. He wasn't begging for money, which is what I rather expected he might be doing. That's not uncommon. Please don't tell me that this is the way we should be treating our fellow citizens in, in 2019. But how do we fix this then? Like, clearly the government wants to do something, but what is it that we need to do? Maybe some, what's not being done? Well, look, it, it, there's, there's nothing magical about this. Everybody knows what the solutions are. Uh, around addiction and the petty crime, which is what's driving the diminishing compassion, uh, you need detox beds readily available. You need treatment to follow, you need programs, and you need housing, and not shelters, safe, secure housing. Uh, you need dry housing, and you need wet housing for those just starting out and, and looking to get them stabilized and healthy enough to, to recognize that they need to, to deal with their addictions. It's a massive undertaking, but it's province-wide, but it's countrywide. We know this, and, and it has become a bit of a national crisis. The, what we used to see in the downtown east side, sadly, and thought was confined to Vancouver, is now readily evident in most communities of any size in British Columbia. And so what is Nanaimo doing? How has the opioid overdose crisis hit Nanaimo? What, what have you seen happen? 
Well, it's not just the opioid crisis. Let, let's emphasize this. It is a mental health and addictions crisis. It's not just about the opioids. It's about other drugs that are being uh, improperly taken. It's about the and, and it is obviously about the fentanyl uh, crisis, the number of deaths in our streets. Uh, they happen everywhere. And when I talk about compassion fatigue, I'm also referring to the fatigue you will hear expressed by firefighters, by paramedics, the people in emergency. Our emergency in Nanaimo, for example, gets more people than Royal Jubilee in Victoria, the major hospital there. We're a city of a little under 100,000. Yes, we're bigger in Victoria, but we are not the, the hospital for a squam, although, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, uh, we... We need, we need help. And you know what? I, I believe the government is listening. I believe it cares. But shifting resources and dealing with the end result, as I said earlier, of 30 or 40 years of social and, and to some extent economic policy when funding was cut off from so many things uh, means that we are in this grim state now. And you must be hearing this from other mayors as well. You talked about the mayor of Terrace, but other communities in B.C., are they facing the same issue? Absolutely facing the same issue um, in the odd in the some of the smaller rural areas. I was just speaking to one of the island's trust reps. They they need a shelter in the island that this person represents, but um, it's not it's not as bad obviously as Nanaimo or downtown Victoria or Kelowna or Prince George. Um, but communities communities still care. The leadership in the communities still care. But there is a portion of the population again, that is starting to lose its compassion. They just want the problem to go away. They are tired of, of seeing people in obvious distress in all of their public spaces. They're tired of finding needles in their parks. Uh, they're tired of not feeling comfortable or safe going into parks. And whether or not that fear is justified is another question. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, if you feel it, you feel it. What do you say to those people then? I say to those people, be patient. We didn't get into this overnight. Please be patient. We're trying. We're not ignoring the problem. But again, the resources, the jurisdiction, the legal responsibility fall to the provincial government and to some extent the federal government. And I'm saddened that there isn't more discussion around this in the federal campaign. Because I can tell you when, you know, the mayor of Nanaimo goes out for lunch, as he often does, and and makes himself available so that people see and come and chat about things. This is the topic. This is the most common topic. It's not just, gee, we're, we're happy to see a, a good council working. Uh, that may be the opener, but then we lapse into, you know, gee, I'm this homelessness thing, this housing thing, this addiction thing, whatever, they, various phrases they use. That becomes the topic of the day. Well, Mayor Krogh, thank you for your time on this. A pleasure. Thank you. I, I, I believe the government's listening, but we need help. That is Leonard Krogh, the mayor of Nanaimo. Do you think we're getting compassion fatigue when it comes to these issues like homelessness and the overdose crisis? People want to help, but did he think that maybe it's getting to the point now where people are like, listen, whatever we're doing isn't working, so what do we do next? Well, let's talk about money laundering. It has now also come up in the federal election campaign because Conservative leader Andrew Scheer has promised to hold a national public inquiry if elected. Now, the B.C. government, of course, called for a public inquiry into money laundering last spring after three independent reports in this province 
found that illegal money was distorting the provincial economy, driving up house prices, fueling the overdose crisis. Attorney General David Eby says he is pleased that money laundering has become an issue of debate during this federal election campaign. Uh, We're becoming internationally known for this. We need to address it quickly. Uh, I think that all parties should be concerned about this and that it should be a point of debate uh, during the election about how parties can respond best and how the federal government can respond best to this because that debate will bring forward good suggestions for how to address this issue in B.C. Now, this issue has also come up at the annual convention. The Union of B.C. Municipalities, where city councillors and mayors from all over the province gather to talk about issues that they feel strongly about. And as I said, money laundering has come up. David Eby says he has been hearing that municipalities would like more help when it comes to this issue. And that's what we're going to talk about right now. Richmond councillor Kelly Green joins us in studio to discuss this. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I understand you did talk about this yesterday. What were the concerns that you wanted to bring up from Richmond? Um, Just that we're really limited in the amount of response that we're able to do as a municipality. Um, We're frontline on what's happening in our community. We know that it's a big problem. We can see it. Um, But we're limited in the tools that we have at our disposal. We're doing the best we can with what we've got. Um, We're hiring um, a record level of RCMP. We're hiring another 51 members um, plus support staff and um, doing the best we can with our bylaws. But we need help from other levels of government to be able to um, really effectively address the situation. In what ways do you see it? What kind of things are visible in Richmond? Um, Well, obviously the house prices, um, a lot of the kinds of houses that are being built as well, it's quite obvious what kinds of houses are being built for um, the the purpose of speculation and and money laundering um, and um, which houses are being built for people to live in. Um, So so there's that visible aspect. Then there's the invisible aspect where we've got um, our Chamber of Commerce identifying housing as a top issue for um, a concern of all their business members, um, being able to uh, attract and retain um, crucial employees. You can't have a business without employees. Um, So so we're really, we're struggling. We're we're trying, um, but money laundering is a, a major international issue. It's well with, you know, beyond the scope of what a city can deal with. And so we're looking for um, backstops from the provincial and the federal government. In in what ways? What kind of backstops are you talking about and what would they do? Um, We'd like to see, um, you know, more investigations. Obviously, we've heard a lot about the Silver International case and and what's come from that. And hopefully there's been some uh, learning experiences that have happened. Um, So more investigations. uh, we can't investigate international crime at, at a city detachment. That's not something that, that can happen. Um, so so there's that aspect. The other aspect is um, regulations. So we've also got that, that aspect of the, the money service business, which is facilitating a lot of these transactions. Um, and so we need more help in how we can regulate that. The city is limited in how it can re- regulate businesses and how they operate. Um, when you get into things like requiring FinTrack registration and things like that, that has to come from other levels of government. We can't do that. It's not in our purview. We're not allowed to do that. So um, So if somebody wants to open up like a currency business in Richmond, you can't, Richmond can't say, well, wait a minute, what kind of currency business and we want to make sure you have all the proper regulations to do this. You can't do that. We we can make sure that they follow the city bylaws and having um, you know a safe workplace, but we can't require them to register with FinTrack, for example, because right now registering with FinTrack is something that is recommended, um, but is not a law um, by the federal government. So. 
um, we're we're just we're looking for help. We're we're hoping that more stringent regulations are going to be coming um, for the different kinds of businesses and and the different investigations. Um, we've been hearing about um, you know the bulk cash transactions are coming down in casinos, but now we're seeing luxury car sales go through the roof and they're being exported elsewhere as a kind of currency. So. So if you, if somebody in Richmond, like on council or within the city sees something or knows of something that's going on, can, is there no mechanism then for council to go to your local RCMP detachment and say, we'd like this investigated? Um, absolutely. And, and, you know, I, ha- you know, we've talked with our detachment and, and they do have good dialogue with other levels of government. Um, I don't know, I don't know at the prov- provincial level or the federal level, how aggressive they're being in these kinds of investigations. I'm hoping they're being very, you know, aggressive. And I hope that whenever we um, send information to them, that it's being um, added to whatever file it happens to be. But um uh, we we just we need we need more regulations in place, more transparency, um, and um, that's the kind of partnership I'm hoping for. Obviously, casinos have been singled out as a big problematic issue, and Richmond has one of the biggest with River Rock. <laughs> have you heard of issues cropping up with that over the years? Um, uh, so. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a new counselor, so I haven't been privy to conversations that have happened before. But we um, have recently been doing a lot of um, letter writing and um, talking with um, other levels of government to to try to you know recognize the level of problem that we're having. Um, on the plus side, a lot of the regulations that have been coming in, as they've been coming in, have had a measurable impact. And so um, we are seeing improvements. But you know, I, I always say that money is like water and it flows through the cracks. So we really need to know where those cracks right. are and how to prevent and stop those flows of money. Because um, those flows of money, it's not like money laundering is some victimless crime. It's not a, it's not a white collar crime. Oh, somebody laundered some money, no big deal. It's the end destination for the proceeds of crime. People have been hurt. Criminal activity has taken place. And this is money laundering. This is criminals trying to make their money acceptable in society. What about the zoning issue then? You mentioned housing that sometimes you can tell sometimes when a house is being built to be speculated or flipped or whatever, as opposed to a family living there. Is there nothing in terms of zoning that the city can do about that? Um, well, it's a single family home zone, right? So you can have um, an identical lot and in one you have um, a house that is clearly built in a very interesting kind of way. And on the other, it's built um, obviously for a family and a family immediately moves in. Um, we can't tell people the style of their houses. Um, they, those houses could be the same size, right? Um, they might have different features. One might have a lot of security cameras. I'm just going to put that out there. But um, Sounds to me like <laughs> Councillor Green, you have seen this kind of thing before. So heavy-duty security systems kind of raise the alarm on that one. Uh, yeah, no, I've done a, I've done a lot of uh, door knocking and walking through neighbourhoods and there's, you know, the occasional neighbourhood and it's just, it's really sad. There'll be like two or three houses on a on a street that'll have uh, occupants on, and you can tell they're vacant you can tell that these are luxury homes that have been locked up and um Lots just of security left. yeah you, you see a lot of those little bubbles on the corners of the the buildings or by the front door and stuff so um does that immediate when you see that you go okay what like what's going on there um, like there's security. Lots of people have the nest or whatever, yeah, right? A lot of people do. But do you think sometimes you're going, well, there's more going on there? Um, 
Yeah, I, I try not to speculate too much on that. I, 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 there's there's so many pieces of this puzzle that are that are moving pieces right now. Um, uh, you know, but I, I think that a lot of the transparency um, part of what the thirty point uh, housing plan is going to be doing, I think that's going to help a lot um, with the real estate. So. Um, if we can know who owns these houses and we can know right. that they're vacant, um, we can we can go a lot farther. So with all the talk then about money laundering, all the crackdowns, all the reports, the public inquiry coming up, do you think that's helped at all? I think it has helped. I think having this public dialogue is um, really important because I, I think that it was um, really swept under the rug and, and it was um, minimized. Um, but the, the lived effects of it were, were real. And so when we're acknowledging that this is happening, um, has happened and is happening, um, we can actually make progress because if you deny a problem, you're never yeah. going to get towards a solution. Uh, have, now, what kind of response did you get from the provincial government on this? I think that they're very positive and that they're working uh, very quickly um, towards um, important steps. So um, one of them being the transparent ownership registry. Um, and I think that that's going to be um, a big uh, part of that. Um, you and think I, that's going to be an issue in Richmond? People no longer, non-bird companies, you have to show us who owns all this property. Exactly. And and not having those straw purchasers where it's right. like, oh, um, a student just bought a $3 million house. Yeah. Um, realistically, it's not the student's house. You think that'll make a difference then when that when that comes in? I, I'm hopeful because the thing is too is like that that not only is it increasing the house prices, it's displacing residents, um, but it's really eroding the, the sense of community. When you're living on that street with like two or three people in the you know the home, yeah. um, or in a condo block where half of them are empty, like where is that sense of community and safety? And so um, I think we can do a lot better. And you know if one of the ways that we um, uh, tackle this is in increasing um, vacancy taxes, I would be personally very happy to see that because there is a real cost to our community. Do you think Richmond needs that? Vancouver's got an empty homes tax. Does Richmond need one of those? I would love it. Um, We have talked about it uh, in council and it was not uh, passed forward. Um, So um, it's something that I think is is really important. It's one of the tools that we need, um, not just to try to reduce the vacancy rate, um, uh, and or sorry, improve the vacancy rate, but also to recoup some of those costs, and and those costs are um, you know um, uh, people feel unsafe, the the community you know sense of community is eroded, but then you also get people that say that they are residents when they might only be here um, a very short time of the year, and then they would be accessing really expensive services like healthcare and um, education that they haven't been contributing to, but you and I, we're here and we're declaring all our income, we're paying fully into those right. systems. So with an empty homes tax, and that gives you one more tool, like in Vancouver, to figure out who's here and who's not here. Exactly, and then maybe we can get some affordable housing. Like we don't have, um, we don't have the ability to really get a lot of um, money through, um our, you know, our existing systems for affordable housing. It's not really supposed to be our jurisdiction in, yeah. in cities. Or our, the city is supposed to be about land use and infrastructure. Um, and it's really morphed into a lot more with um, a homeless crisis, um, you know, addictions and, and um, money laundering issues and all these kinds of things. So we're trying to tackle a lot more than what is our mandate. Um, it's important. I believe in it. Um, but we need very strong partnerships with other levels of government. All right, Councillor Green, thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much. That's Kelly Green, Richmond City Councillor.